let's stand together for the reading of God's word this morning. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, the same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from the hearing of the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. This is the word of the Lord from Romans 10. 9 through 17. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning by sharing with you an affliction that I have that uh, I would imagine many of you have suffered with as well. I have this recurring dream. It happens to me all the time, at least two or three times a month, that, that I wake up and I realize that I've not attended a class in school, somewhere, high school, college, graduate school. I've not been attending a class for months that I was supposed to be attending, and there's a big test coming up, and I'm not prepared. And in my dream, I'm going through all of this stress of trying to figure out how am I going to make up for this they're not going to let me graduate hopefully my teacher just didn't notice that i was gone maybe there there's just some way i'm going to magically go in and ace this test any of you have this this recurring dream i have it all the time most of the time it's a math class just that just adds double anxiety when it's a math class for me but i have that dream over and over and then i will wake up and sometime after waking up i will remember that, that those degrees are already done, they're hanging on the wall, and I can trust them. They can't be taken away from me. The words that are there, the promise that they've given to me is guaranteed, and nobody is going to make me, at this point, go back and take that test again or be in a math class again, prayerfully, hopefully before God. Nobody's ever going to make me do that. And that I can trust that what's been given to me is not going to be taken away. Now, I use this as a metaphor for a conversation I have with people a lot. And you'd be surprised that I have this conversation with Christians in the church of all different ages. Even some who have been a part of the church for decades. They made a decision for Christ a long time ago. Maybe they were even baptized as a child. And yet they still say, 
I, I have this anxiety that maybe I've missed something. Maybe somewhere along the way there was a step that I missed. Maybe there's some loophole that, that when I die and I stand before God, he's going to say, no, there's this one little caveat, there's this one little loophole you didn't catch, and sorry, you didn't do enough. It wasn't good enough. You're, you're, not, you're not going to be allowed into my eternal kingdom. I hear, hear and have this conversation a lot. And, and in the midst of that conversation, I always just ask folks, let's go back and let's think through what are some of the promises that you know God has made to you through Jesus Christ. What are some of the things that you can say, it is written, it is done, God has told me that this is the case, and because I trust in his word, because I know that these words are written down and they can't be taken away, my trust is not in the steps, and my trust is not in whether or not I've covered all my bases in terms of some loophole, but my trust is in the one who made the promise, who gave me the guarantee, who told me simply, if you, believing in faith, will give me your whole heart and life, nothing, no one, will ever be able to snatch you out of my hand. This morning, we're in Romans chapter 10. I don't know if I can make it any simpler this morning to give us confidence that we can trust in the promises of God and we can trust in the simple message of salvation that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, if we believe in our heart that everything the Bible says about Jesus is true, we will be saved. And I love the way one scholar said it. He said, Romans 10 has to be one of the most helpful portions of Scripture for simply pointing the way to salvation. How do we do this? What are the steps? The steps are not complicated. God's not trying to trick us. He doesn't have some secret knowledge that he's waiting for us to find. He simply said, making very clear through this whole chapter, if you read the verses before, that there was a righteousness that was provided by the law of Moses. The problem was, in the days of the Old Testament, and even in the days before Jesus, no one could fulfill that righteousness perfectly. It took Jesus Christ living a perfect life to fulfill the law of Moses so that a new way was made for salvation. But it's not really a new way. It's a new way that's based upon the old. It's rooted in the original covenant promises that God made to his people. But it's sealed now. It's perfected in Jesus Christ so that because we cannot perfectly fulfill all of the obligations of the law, we simply must trust that Jesus has done it. And we simply must place our trust in him so that we will receive the fullness of his salvation, not based upon anything we've done, but the promise that Jesus himself has fulfilled. Because of Christ, the call to salvation is not through the law, but rather it is a call simply to confess and to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, if you have read Romans 9 and 10 before, many of you have memorized it. I wonder if you've ever thought these seem to be in the wrong order. It seems like we should believe and then confess. Why is it that, that Paul begins in verse 9 by saying confess and then believe? Well, the easiest way to solve that is put the two verses together. In verse 9, Paul says confess and believe, but then in verse 10, he reverses the order and he says believe and confess. And this is an ancient rhetorical device called a chiasmus, 
that I won't go to any more detail about than that, except to say this is a way rhetorically that Paul puts these two things on equal footing. In other words, he says, both of these are necessary. We must confess with our mouth before people that Jesus Christ is Lord. But also, along with that confession, there must be this transformation of the heart that in our heart we would say, I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And just in case there was any misunderstanding, he reverses it and he says, you must believe in your heart and you must confess with your mouth. Both working together as the method, the way through which we receive this wonderful gift of salvation that God has offered to us in Jesus Christ. And that confession that Jesus is Lord became the key confession of the first Christians in the early church. Just like you heard Camden do today, this was the confession that every new believer would say on the day of their baptism to make this very bold statement. And of course, when, when we say Jesus is Lord, and we use that word Lord, for the most part, it just sort of fits in church because we think, well, we don't really live in a culture and in a time where we have a, a lot of people around us that we call Lord, so when we use that word for Jesus, it fits because for the most part, he's the only one we ever ascribe that word to. In the ancient world, though, the word Lord was common, and most commonly in Paul's day, it was used for the emperor of Rome. The word kurios is the word for Lord, and, and a common phrase was kurios kaiser, Lord Caesar. And Caesar expected that everyone... Who, who fell within the realm of his empire. And, and Paul's day, the, the realm of Rome was massive, expansive. It was the expectation that everyone would say, Curios, Kaiser, Lord, Caesar. But the early Christians said, no. Our confession is not Caesar is Lord. Our confession is Jesus is Lord. And this was not only the confession that a believer would say, on the day of their baptism but but just the same for us it's a confession we ought to say every single day to wake up every single morning and say today jesus is the lord of my life jesus is the king of my heart he is the one who is in charge of absolutely everything today and my role is to follow him as my lord as my king to please him with my life to do his will and, and to announce the joy of his kingdom wherever I see it and wherever I find it. Jesus Christ is Lord. Saying that Jesus is Lord is, is a worshipful statement. But it's also a statement about his absolute, boundless, and universal authority. It is a pledge when we say Jesus is Lord of unwavering allegiance to him. In other words, we call no one else Lord. And when it comes down to it, we call no one else king before Christ is king of our lives. And it's a confession that verse 10 says specifically, when we say Jesus is Lord with our mouth, we, we profess our faith, and it is an active part of living out our salvation. To confess before others, to say with our mouths, but also with our lives, that Jesus is Lord. But then the second part, which again is on equal footing with the confession, is that we are to believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. 
In other words, it's not enough to just know about Christ. We must know Christ deeply and personally at the deepest level of our heart, believing that no one is saved by words alone. But, but ultimately, our, our heart is, is the key. And, and what Paul's saying here would resonate, especially with his Hebrew, his Jewish audience. Because this kind of language isn't unique to Romans 10, but we find it back in the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy being the, the most common book that the, the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, would quote and would memorize. In Deuteronomy 6, the passage known as the Shema, a passage that we've talked about here often in the five plus years that I've been here. The confession that, that is made by God's covenant people is that these commands that you've given us today, Lord, are on our hearts. They're not just things we know, they're not just things we say, but your words, O oh Lord, are written on our hearts. And then the confession goes on to say, and we impress them on our children. We, we want our children to have these things written on their hearts as well. We are God's covenant people. We are a, a covenant family. His name is written on us. This isn't just religion. It's not just ritual. It's not just something we say because it sounds good or sounds right or because we want to be blessed. This is God's family name written on our hearts, and we impress it on our children. And, and Deuteronomy 30 adds, God's words of life are, are so near to you that as they are in your heart, they also flow from your lips so that you might obey them before people. So what Paul has written here in, in Romans 10 is well-rooted in what God had been saying to his people all along. And specifically, Paul says, believe what in your heart? Believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, why is that the key part of, of belief? Why was testifying to the resurrection the number one message that, that the first Christians proclaimed everywhere they went. Read through the book of Acts. You'll find it with Peter, Paul, the other apostles, the first Christians. Every time they have an opportunity to speak to someone about Christ, they talk about him being risen from the dead. Why? Well, think about it. If you believe that Christ rose from the dead, then don't you then believe everything else that Scripture teaches about him? If you believe he rose from the dead, then you believe that he died on the cross. If you believe that he died on the cross and that that death had some meaning, then you also believe that he lived a perfect life. You also believe that he healed the sick, that he gave sight to the blind, that he demonstrated the power of God through miracles. If you believe that Christ rose from the dead, you also believe he was born of a virgin named Mary who conceived by the Holy Spirit of God if you believe that Christ rose from the dead, you believe he is the Messiah, God's promised Savior for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. So if you believe that Christ rose from the dead, you believe that in your heart. You believe everything the Bible says about Jesus is true. And because of that, salvation, which is also justification before God, you believe in your heart and you are justified. Believing that even in light of our sinfulness, God justifies us. Because we are saved by his grace through faith in him for his glory. 
that we might demonstrate this wonderful work of salvation that he's done in our hearts through our lives. And that happens along with our confession that Jesus is Lord. And this is not just good news for one group of people. This is not just good news for one kind of people. This is good news for everyone. And as Paul continues in Romans 10, he, he talks about the way this good news brings people together. And without question, we look at, at our world and our culture, even our community right now, and we see lots of division. Believe me, I feel that as, as a pastor, I've said this probably several times, maybe it's just therapeutic to keep saying it over and over again, but I feel like there's almost nothing we can't talk about without somebody being upset, and everybody has an opinion. And in some places you're doing too much or you're not doing enough. In some ways you're saying too much or you're not saying enough. We all feel that pressure. But if we think division is rife in our day, Imagine what it must have been like to be among the Jews and the Gentiles in the first century. Hundreds of years of animosity, in many cases that led to violence, that caused these two groups to absolutely hate and despise each other. To talk about each other as if they were worth less than animals. And each one of these groups, boy, you think we're sure about our opinions. Boy, these groups were very proud of their culture. And they were very proud of their religion. And they certainly thought their opinions were right. And the opinions of the others were wrong. And yet, Paul says here, in Christ, walls come down. And even those who have the, the most stark divisions between them can come together. Because Jew and Gentile come together, not now under the banner of Jew or Gentile, but under the heading, the family name, that is the name above all names, Jesus Christ. And as they do that, even the most divisive relationships can come together through the same salvation that brings equality and equity in the economy of God's kingdom so that the Lord of the Jews and the Lord of the Gentiles in Christ is the same Lord He's Lord of all, and he richly blesses both. To the point that Paul reiterates here something that the prophet Joel wrote, but also that we find in Peter's sermon in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is good news for everyone. And this was good news for me when I was 12 years old. You might have noticed that there are a couple of couches on the stage. I thought about joking with you that I was going to start some new sermon series like Welcome to My Living Room or something like that, but I'm not. They're, they're, it's not some creepy sermon series like that, I promise. Uh, they're just here today as, as a prop. Because I want you to picture a 12-year-old me sitting on a couch in a living room, having had, for the most part, no consistent church-going experience in my life, never having memorized any Bible verse except John 3.16, because for some reason almost everybody knew that, and, and, and feeling so lost as a 12-year-old, being such a mess, that I was looking anywhere and everywhere to try to find something to cope with, with all of the pain and the anger that was in my heart. I'm just going to let you know, I, I have not shared this 
story publicly in a long time and I didn't practice it so I can't promise that I'm not going to get a little emotional I'm going to give part one tonight if you come to the festival tonight I'm going to get part two and I might really get emotional during part two not sure we'll just see how it goes but let me just simply model for you a very brief way of sharing what happened to me when I was 12 years old I was the product of a broken home child of divorce blended family coming together my my biological father who i'll share more about this tonight but he passed away when i was 16 but before then my my biological father and i I shared a little of this during the king series he had not created for me and my family any kind of legacy of faith instead it was very much the opposite my biological father had a lot of addictions a lot of bad habits for most of his life he was a very dishonest person And if any of you have ever lived with someone like that, especially as an adult, you know how toxic that can be and how destructive it can be in a home. Most of my childhood was was spent moving from place to place, not staying there very long. Till I was seven years old, my parents were not believers. There was no modeling of Christ-likeness in the home. Again, it was the opposite of that. And, And then when the divorce hit, even though I was just a boy, it sent me spiraling in the wrong direction. From a boy that made really good grades and had a really joyful little heart, uh, for me, things just began to crumble. As I grew from 7 to 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, you, you hear people say this, but this is honestly true. I was the kid, especially going into middle school, that no teacher wanted. And, and my attitude towards everybody was awful. For me, the, the easiest way to find attention was through negative attention, and so I sought it. And I was at 12 years old doing things that I won't say because I don't like to give anybody ideas, but no 12-year-old should ever be exposed or experiment with such things. But I got invited to this church event, and, and we had started attending this church, actually, Jinx First Baptist, just on the other side of the river, because a, a neighbor had invited us to church, and my parents, now my mom and my stepdad, who were not believers, said, you know, we've tried everything else, Maybe we should get our family in church. And so they made us go, and boy, did we hate it. But I got invited to this event. Some of you who are my my age will remember Disciple Now. You remember that? Got invited to this event by by some of the the kids in the youth group. And and once the cute girls got involved in the invitation, I decided I would go. And there I was one evening sitting on the couch, a very broken young man, with a lot of anger and a lot of hurt, already carrying a lot of baggage, and realizing very clearly, boy, yes, I have sinned against God. And I began to, to as I heard the message of the gospel, and it was, it was shared with me so clearly at that age, I began to realize that, that God loved me anyway. And that even though I, even at a young age, felt like I had already stacked up so much sin and wrong, that God still loved me, that he was willing to forgive me, that he was creating a path forward for me, and that this emptiness that I felt inside, that I was already at a young age trying to fill with so many other things, that there was only one solution. And all I can tell you is that as I sat on that couch in that living room, I believed it. I didn't know, I I couldn't explain it, I didn't understand. Every one of those other teenagers around me certainly knew a lot more of the Bible than I did. But for whatever reason, I chose to trust God that night to believe in that message. And I asked Jesus Christ to come into my heart. I confessed my sin. I committed my whole life to him. 
I said, from this day forward, I don't want to be the same person I've been. I want to be different, and I want to live for you. And though I have no idea how to do it, God, I realized, well, I've got some other teenagers around me that I think are going to walk with me in this process. And I made that decision that night. And I can't tell you that anything magical happened, because it's not magic. I can't say that I had some, some overwhelming feeling other than just a sense of peace. That, that I had found whatever it was that I'd been looking for. And I made that confession. I asked Jesus to be the Lord of my life. And over the next few months, boy, that transformation that started in my heart, that life, it took root, and I became a completely different young man. A different young man in my school, a different young man in my home, though I will say that took a little longer. <laughs> but people noticed a difference. And just like you heard Camden make that confession today, Jesus is Lord, I, God gave me the courage as a middle schooler and a high schooler to, when people said, what's different about you, to say Jesus. Jesus is Lord. I'll give you part two of that story tonight. But what happened to, to me on that couch as a 12-year-old is, is, is proof that the good news of Jesus Christ is for everyone because, boy, I was a mess when I came to him. But that salvation transformed my heart and life. And it's a reminder that this salvation that I've experienced has not just been experienced by me, and it's not just been experienced by people in this room, but this message of the good news of Jesus Christ has been transforming hearts and lives for millennia and is still at work around us today. And here's the promise, just in case you doubt. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is good news for everyone. Here's what Paul writes in Philippians 2. Someday at the name above every name, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will acknowledge what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the work that he's done. This is by his grace the salvation that he has provided. The cross of Jesus Christ is the intersection where people from every walk of life come together under that one name, the name above every name. And in Christ, the good news for everyone is, is good news for us. It's good news for you. Simply by saying, Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that everything the Bible says about Jesus is true. Romans 10 announces good news for everyone, but... It also is a challenge for the church. And the, the next part of these verses really is our challenge. And I, I want you to take this challenge. I want you to remember if you are a follower of Christ, if you've experienced that heart transformation, I want you to remember the work that's been done in you and the commission that you were given with that work. That the light that, that is now inside of you in Jesus Christ is not to be hidden under a lamp or, or under a bowl. That lamp is supposed to, to shine out and give light to everyone around you. And Paul says, because of what Christ has done, because Jesus Christ has, has made it possible that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, we're also called to give people the opportunity to hear that message. To hear the message of Christ's salvation. But Paul asked, how, how then can they call on the name of the one for salvation that they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they've never heard about? And how can they hear unless someone is willing to go and to proclaim to them? 
our challenge, the challenge to the church, is not just a challenge for us here, but it's, it's from here to the ends of the earth. But hear me, it's not just a challenge to the ends of the earth, it's a challenge for here and now. Sometimes the ends of the earth almost seems easier because we think, well, God's going to set apart certain other people who are going to go do that. But, but the challenge is also for this moment right now, for your one, for whoever the Lord might lay on your, your heart, who's in your life every single day, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, wherever it is that you go, the challenge for the church is for us here and now. And there are lots of people who, who will look at these verses and they'll, they'll want to debate them and they'll say, well, aren't there other ways that, that God can reach out to people? You know, the, the age-old question, well, what if the missionary never makes it to, to that place and they never hear? Listen, I believe that there are limitless ways that God can reveal himself to people. God has to give us a peace in our heart about that. But in no way does that take away from the commission and the command that we are to be sent people. Trying to come up with some reason why, well, this doesn't make sense or this or that, it doesn't excuse us nor does it give us an excuse to say the Great Commission doesn't apply to us. We've been sent out with this message and rather than worrying about all those hypotheticals, the question is, will we be faithful to the responsibility that he has given us now to the places that he will call us and send us and commission us to go? The central point of these verses is that we as God's new covenant people are sent people. That's who we are as the church. And our clear commission is to bring the good news to those who have not heard. And I love how Paul follows this with the words of Isaiah and how beautiful it is when, when obedient, faithful feet go out and bring the good news to others. It's a beautiful thing indeed. Some of you may have heard of the RMS Queen Mary ship. This ship first set sail back in the 1930s. It was larger than the Titanic and it was... Uh, absolutely one of the most powerful and most luxurious passenger ships ever to set sail on the Atlantic. It had five dining areas, two swimming pools, beauty salons, and a grand ballroom. Some of the celebrities who traveled on the Queen Mary were Clark Gable, Bob Hope, Queen Elizabeth II, Winston Churchill, even Laurel and Hardy and Desi Arnaz. And lots of the younger people in the room are like, who, who, and who? It was an amazing ship and and people clamored to experience its luxury but in 1939 the priorities of the west changed and ships like the rms queen mary needed to be put into service for the allied forces in world war ii and so while docked in new york the queen mary got a complete makeover she was transformed into a troop carrying ship to transport soldiers to various battlefronts the the ship's hull and funnels were painted from white, black, and red to battleship gray. And the Queen Mary's name became the Gray Ghost as she carried up to 15,000 soldiers from place to place. After she served faithfully throughout the war, she eventually went back to carrying people but finally was taken out of service. And today, the Queen Mary is nothing more than a floating museum. 
as we think about Romans 10 and the challenge it is for the church, what a metaphor this serves for us. That the church is made up of people. We are called as, as one body to carry people and to carry them forward to the places they're supposed to go. But at any moment, we are called to be ready to step into action. And when the moment comes that we are to be put into a different kind of service for the kingdom, we are ready and willing because of that unwavering allegiance to Christ our King to say, yes, what can we do? But if the time comes that we ever fail to live out faithfully the commission, if we ever resist the challenge, if it becomes more about just floating on the water, experiencing our comfort and our luxury, taking it easy, only being a place that draws in the elite and is no longer good news for the poor, the oppressed, the broken, the imprisoned, the embattled, then we too as the American church, even as South Tulsa Baptist Church, could become nothing more than a floating museum. You can look all around the world and fly, find lots of churches that used to be effective that are empty, that are like museums today. We've been given this challenge. We've been given this commission as sent people to go into the places where they have not heard, where they do not believe, and to announce to them the good news. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, who confesses and believes in Jesus Christ, will be saved. And yes, Paul reminds us here at the end of this text, there is a hard truth. Not everyone is going to accept our message. Not everyone is going to believe the message about Christ. But our job is to announce and to proclaim his salvation nonetheless, even when it's hard. Because we know, as he's already made clear, faith comes from hearing the message and that message is heard through, through the word that's delivered about Jesus Christ. This is our challenge as the church. This is why I believe God has so clearly called us to do the work we're going to be doing this week. And I hope you will be diligent in praying for us. And I hope that you will be diligent in, in bringing someone tonight. Hopefully if you hadn't made that choice, then this morning you, you feel that challenge. Bring someone to be here. You know how we do things at South Tulsa. There's not going to be manipulation. It's not going to be heavy-handed. But we're going to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, believing that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. This morning as we close, I want to, to take you back to that couch where I sat when I was 12 years old. And I want you to hear the simple message that I heard when I sat on that couch. It wasn't from Romans chapter 10. It was from Peter's message in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where those same words, again, that we heard, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, where those words were proclaimed. Here's what I remember, and, and, and maybe the, the, one of the best passages you'll find in all of the New Testament to explain to someone what it means, how you take this step of confessing and believing. Peter had just preached a very hard message to a large group of people, and, and the response that he heard, if only it were always this easy, was what shall we do? The people wanted to know, how should we respond to this message we've heard? And Peter replied, replied simply as he was filled with the Holy Spirit, repent, turn away from your sinful life, the path that you're on. And be baptized, every single one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. 
and you will receive this wonderful gift that the apostles had been demonstrating, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is not just for you, but it's just like the people believed in the days of Deuteronomy. It's also a promise for your children that the transformation that, that happens in your heart and life is that family name, the name above all names that will transform your whole household, your whole family. This promise is for you. It's also for your children. It's for all who are far off. It's for all whom the Lord our God will call because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I want to invite you this morning as we have our time of invitation and response to be willing to open up your heart and to pray this simple prayer. Our ministers are going to be available and, and we would love to just walk you through this, talk, you, talk to you more about this or, or walk you through this prayer here in just a moment that you would simply repent of your sins and in the name of Jesus Christ, believe upon him, confess that he is Lord for the forgiveness of your sins and believe today that you will receive the same Holy Spirit, you'll come under the same family name and be a part of this great work of proclaiming the salvation of Jesus Christ that, that he has called us as the church to do.